Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. As we've been looking through the book of Genesis, and particularly these last few chapters in the book of Genesis, we've, we've been seeing God's sovereignty in all things. In so many different ways we've been seeing it. How he uses sin and evil, people that are good and bad, and even circumstances, all under his sovereign control to bring about his purposes. We saw of how Joseph was sovereignly brought to Egypt And how God sovereignly has grown him in his character and godliness and now has raised him to the second most powerful person in Egypt. And as far as we know about Joseph's family, or if you want to use the father's name, Jacob, his father and his family... As I mentioned to you before, it's a dysfunctional family, a divided family. And even these brothers have no regard for God. And, for, and so God's plan is to take this divided family, to remove them from the land of Canaan, to protect them from all the sin of Canaan because they're being divided and slowly getting assimilated into Canaan, to take them out from there, to bring them together as a unified family that will call upon his name and then place them in Egypt to finally make them into the nation of Israel that he will use to bless other nations. So as I mentioned last week, What God is doing here in the final chapters is not just simply saving Jacob's family in a physical sense from famine, but he's also saving them spiritually from a spiritual famine, so to speak, to turn them, the entire family, back to the Lord. In fact, more specifically, I could even say that you know, I, I was just reading an e- excerpt from a book on the life of Joseph this uh, past week, and this is what the excerpt said. Quote, Joseph occupies a crucial role in the Bible's drama of redemption. Ultimately, Joseph's story is about God's intention to save not just Joseph's family, but bringing through Judah a savior for the world. End quote. See, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, will ultimately come from the line of Judah. So there's even a sense in which God is going to save this family physically and spiritually. And then more specifically, he's going to save Judah because through the line of Judah will then come Jesus Christ who will save the world. And over the next few chapters, we will see not just Joseph playing a prominent role, therefore, we will also see how Judah will play a prominent role. Now, last week, we saw God's severe mercy in Jacob's family. 
God's severe mercy in bringing difficulties. While these difficulties were not comfortable or nice, he was bringing these difficulties into this family for their good, to soften their hearts, to convict them of their sin and to draw them to himself and for them to be reconciled to each other as well. And this morning, we're going to see God's mercy again in Jacob's family, but how it comes in an unexpected way. And again, I want to remind you this. The, the point of these narratives in the Bible, it's not just a history lesson. It's not just of oh, what happened you know, from the beginning of creation and how God planned his um, that plan of redemption, how it came about in history. While it is that, it is not simply just history of redemption. But it is also deeply theological. Because in each of these events, in these narratives, it's showing us who God is and who, what his character is and his workings in the lives of his people. Why? To remind us, believers in this day and age, that this God is the same as the God as yesterday. That he works in exactly the same way. That his character is still unchanging. And so I pray that as we look at this narrative this morning, we will see all of that about not just the historical aspect of how God is bringing about his plan of redemption, but we will see more and more of God's character and his workings because it is that same God that we serve today and he is working in exactly the same way in the lives of his people today. So God's unexpected mercy in Jacob's family. And broadly, we're going to look at this, chapter 43, under two scenes. Jacob sending his sons to Egypt, that's in verses 1 through 14. And then Joseph then meeting his brothers in Egypt in verses 15 through to 34. So firstly, God, uh, Jacob sending his sons to Egypt. 43 and verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. Now I want you to think of the situation here. Judah is crushed with severe grief thinking that his beloved son, Joseph, is dead. If you remember, at the end of Genesis 37, as Jacob receives the news that apparently his son, Joseph, is dead, he said, I shall go down to my death mourning. He refused to be comforted and was committed to be in that state of grief all the days of his life till the day he dies. He's not turning to the Lord to find comfort and hope in the promises of God. Now more than 20 years have passed since then. 
And what would have been a, you know, a reasonable and understandable grief, it's given way to actually this self-absorbed, excessive sorrow over Joseph. That's the state Jacob is in. And now Jacob sinfully favors Benjamin, that other son of his beloved wife, Rachel, over all his other sons. Why? Because now he's fearful and sinfully overprotective of Benjamin, thinking now this beloved son of mine, something is going to happen to him. And so he won't let Benjamin go anywhere, even though he's a grown adult. And so when the famine came, we saw this last week, the brothers went to Egypt without Benjamin and they came back with grain and money. But as far as Jacob could see, Simeon was missing. And the sons come back and say, we have to take Benjamin back to Egypt to show him to this Egyptian prince or the Egyptian lord. Because he thinks we're spies and we have to clear our name and we've we have to get Simeon released from the pit. But Jacob will not let go of Benjamin. You see, he's nurtured this self-absorbed grief over Joseph over the years. And now he's so sinfully clinging on to Benjamin. So much so that he would hold on to Benjamin and let Simeon rot in the pit, then let go of Benjamin and free Simeon from prison in Egypt. I mean, Jacob would have been a difficult man to deal with. So the brothers haven't been able to go back to Egypt to get Simeon back. Now some time has passed. The severe famine is continuing. Simeon still rotting in that pit in Egypt. And all the grain that they brought from Egypt has finished and they have nothing at home now. And what about Jacob? He's still in a state of grief and clinging on to his dear Benjamin. And then seeing there's no grain now in the home, he comes and tells his sons, oh, go to Egypt and get some food. You can imagine the sons would be like, how are we going to talk to father now? But Judah now steps in and speaks for his brothers. And this is what he says in verse 3. But Judah said to him, the man, which man? The prince of Egypt, the lord of Egypt, which is Joseph himself, and they don't know it. The man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, he's telling his father, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, for the man has said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? 
So Judah says to his father, we've been warned by that Egyptian prince. Don't come back with your, without your younger brother. No Benjamin, no food. But Jacob is so absorbed in himself and his difficulties and his grief that it makes him think, you know, everything is all about himself. So much so that what has happened now in Egypt, he says, why did you treat me so badly? Now the brothers back up Judah and explain themselves. Verse 7. They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your own brother down? You know, at first reading this, you might be like, Hang on a second, did this actually happen? Because last week we didn't hear about this in the brothers' interactions with the Egyptian prince. But as we will see in the next chapter, the same thing will be said to Joseph. So in other words, the brothers are not making this up. They're not lying to their father. This detailed interaction was simply not mentioned in the previous chapter and it's just being explained right now. So the brothers say, the man had asked all these questions, but we don't know ultimately that he would say, bring Benjamin back. Now Judah steps in again in order to persuade his father. Verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. And I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. And if I do not bring him back to you and send, set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And if we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So Judah is now persuading his father, trying to reason with his father. Saying, Father, this is a life and death situation. Everyone, you, me, your other sons, including your grandchildren, everyone will die if Benjamin doesn't come with us. And then Judah says this, I myself will be Benjamin's pledge or Benjamin's guarantor. And if I fail, I'll bear the blame. In fact, the, I'll bear the blame forever. In fact, the, the, the word in the Hebrew is even more stronger. It, it, it's actually, I'll bear the sin forever. I mean, Judah is, at this point, is putting his own life at risk for the sake of everyone else. He's saying, I will bear the lifelong shame if I fail. Now, we might not understand the significance of that, just, you know, if, if we simply import our modern thinking into this. But in that 
ancient Middle Eastern culture. It was that honor-shame culture that they lived in. So if one failed or shamed the family, the only way out of that shame or dishonor was death. I mean, we see in the movies, right? Sometimes even these Japanese samurais, if they failed, they, you know, it's like, uh, it was shameful. The only way out of that shame is what? Where they're killed. And so it's that sort of a culture. The only way out of that shame is death. But what Judah is saying is even more profound, where he's saying, I will bear the shame and guilt forever. What he's essentially saying is, I will be willing to be cut off from the family, cut off from any inheritance whatsoever, bearing the shame forever as having sinned against the family and treated as though dead to this family. Why is he going to do this? For the sake of the rest of his family. I mean, this is such a different Judah than what we've seen him previously to be. Really unexpected of Judah to be like this. I mean, Judah was an opportunistic man, a self-absorbed man, willing to use people for his own gain. Remember many years ago, it was Judah who was the guy who said, oh, let's not kill Joseph. Let's sell him as a slave and then make some profit. You know, make some gains there. And then later, Judah was also the guy who used Tamar, his own daughter-in-law, thinking she was a prostitute for his own personal gain. In fact, the word pledge that's used here, where he says, I will be a pledge, it's the same word that's used back in Genesis 38, when Judah made a pledge with Tamar in exchange for what he wanted. So what the text is showing is how God has been at work in Judah's life and he's being changed from the inside out. From being someone who served only himself, he's now offering himself as a pledge for the sake of others. And this is also so different from what Reuben, the firstborn, had said as well, right? What did Reuben say? We saw that last week where he said, oh, you know what? If I, let me take Benjamin with me and if, Benj- if it's not successful, you can kill my sons. Passes on the buck to his sons. But here, Judah is taking full responsibility. Judah is exactly the kind of leader that this family needs. Someone who is willing to pledge himself for the sake of his brothers. And Judah even tells his father, and if there's no delay in taking Benjamin in the first place, we would have gone and come back from Egypt a second time already. So Judah is finally convinced by Jacob to send Benjamin, although reluctantly. Verse 11. Then their father said to him, if it must be so, then do this. You, you can hear the reluctance there. Okay, fine. I, I guess if there's nothing else to do, then you do this. He says, take some of the choice fruits of the land 
in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. So Jacob says, take double the money. Take also the money that was returned. um, But also take some gifts with you. You know, and the irony here is that the spices that are mentioned here are the same spices that are mentioned in Genesis 37, where the Ishmaelite caravan is carrying these spices and Joseph's brothers give, you know, sell Joseph as a slave and they receive the money. What's happening here now? The brothers on Jacob's advice, are going to take substantial amount of money and they're going to take the same spices to none other than Joseph. It's almost like a reversal is happening right now. And Jacob, by telling his sons to take all this money and gifts, he's trying to make sure that you know, they have the best chance of appeasing this Egyptian prince. And that everything would go well for them and they'd get Benjamin back. And then finally, Jacob offers this prayer for them. Verse 14. He says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. See, God has brought Jacob to a point where he's totally helpless. And he has to trust the almighty God and let go of Benjamin. Because it's really a life or death situation now. He cannot hold on to Benjamin any longer and be in that state of grief. Jacob has been brought to a place where he has to rely on the Lord of heaven and earth against whom no one can stand. The very almighty God. And so he prays, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. So Jacob is completely submitted, whether willingly or unwillingly, to the almighty hand of God. A couple of things to note here. Just first thing with regards to his prayer. In his prayer he says, you know, that God Almighty would grant you mercy in the sight of this Egyptian Lord. What does that tell you about Jacob's understanding? See, Jacob understands that the heart of this Egyptian prince is in the Almighty's hand. You see? Only if the Almighty God works in the heart of this Egyptian Lord can everything go well when they bring these gifts to Him. 
And it's the same reason, right, why we bring others to God in prayer. Because God is almighty against whom no one can stand. And he is able to move even the hardest of hearts. He's the sovereign one, the almighty one. So on the one hand, you see, Jacob is brought to a point where he's trusting in the almighty sovereign God and he's exhibiting faith. But on the other hand, there's also a sense of resignation and and sadness and fear and doubt. I mean, as believers, we can respond similarly, right? In such a mixed way. Lord, I'm trusting you in this situation, but it's mixed with great fear and doubt and anxiety and all kinds of things. You know, when you think of the main human players in this chapter, you have Joseph, as we've seen, that has gone from strength to strength in his faith. It's wonderful to see and how he's exuding godliness and the character of God. Then you have Judah. I mean, he was such a self-focused man. Joseph's older brother. But now he's significantly changing and continuing to change. And his faith is even being displayed by his changing attitude towards his brothers and his view of life. I mean, that's totally unexpected, someone like Judah. And really, that's unexpected mercy in the life of Judah. Then you have Joseph's father, Jacob. Yes, he's changed a lot from his younger days. Remember how he was in his younger days. But he still has Many weaknesses and struggles and doubts. What can we say about that? Well, for starters, one's faith is not necessarily dependent on one's physical age. And growing in faith and changing from the inside out, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. It takes a long time. It's not just a press a button and you're changed. God has to work in the person's heart even as the person seeks after God. Yes, some people grow and mature faster while others take a lot longer and that's because of several reasons. But the important thing to remember is that God is ultimately at work and the process in the lives of his people and the process of change takes time in our own life as well as in the life of other believers. And I was greatly helped by this one commentator. Listen to him as he speaks about the way that we are to view other believers and even ourselves in light of God's working. Quote, Sometimes we demand unrealistic levels of transformation from people. Talking about people who are believers. From people and refuse to make any concessions until the other person has changed completely. But change is a process. And we can often recognize and celebrate baby steps in the right direction. 
while still acknowledging that the process has a good deal further to go. And then he says, sometimes we ourselves are the ones who need to change. We recognize that we are the ones who have sinned and are sinning against those around us. And yet we don't have the power to transform ourselves. God's work of sanctification in our hearts is often a slow process in which it is appropriate to recognize and celebrate every step in the right direction. Close quote. So Jacob at this point is displaying great faith on the one hand in the almighty God, but it's also mixed with fear and doubt and despondency. But you know, what I love here is, I don't know if you noticed in these few verses where Jacob is actually referred to as Israel. Did you notice the change there? I love that. Because Israel is the new name that God gave to Jacob after he wrestled with God in Peniel. And if you remember from back then, I said, Israel has got multiple meanings. It can mean he strives with God, or that God strives. It can mean both. Or in place of the word strive, you can even use the word fight, meaning he fights for God. Or God fights, meaning God fights for him. See, the only way anyone can strive in this world is by recognizing their own insufficiency and depending on God. Why? Because God alone is ultimately the one who will strive and succeed. Because he alone is the one who will fight for his people and succeed in any situation. It is only because of him as God's people rely on him. That's how people of God strive. So the picture here, when you look at Jacob, is a picture of a man who has faith in God, but is weak. But God is going to act on his behalf. Why? Because at the end of the day, Jacob's life is not dependent on the strength of his faith, but it's dependent on the strength of his God. As, he, as weakly as he may be depending on him. And it's the same for us too. That our lives are not dependent on the strength of our faith, but it's dependent on the strength of our God as we depend on Him. What a mercy this is, right? From the weakest believer to the strongest believer. Because God is who He is, because He is Almighty God, He will still ultimately strive or fight for his people and he will succeed and therefore we can hope in him. So here we see God's unexpected mercy in the life of Judah and God is working in and through Judah's life ultimately to bring about his purposes in this family's life. 
But God is also working in the life of Jacob, even with this feeble prayer, he's going to work out his purposes and plans. And this now brings us to the second scene in this chapter, where Joseph now meets his brothers as Jacob sends them off to Egypt. Verse 15. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. And they arose and went to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. See, Joseph had previously accused these men or his brothers of being spies. Now that Benjamin, he can see Benjamin in a distance, there won't be any more accusations against them about being spies. But the question still remains, have the brothers actually changed? Because bringing Benjamin simply shows that, okay, they want more grain and they want Simeon to be released, perhaps. But have they really changed? Because unless they have been changed from the inside out, Joseph can't be reconciled with his family and they can't be a unified family in Egypt where finally God will make them into a nation. Are the brothers still looking out for themselves and divided? Or are they concerned about God and are they coming together and being reconciled? So Joseph still has a plan in order to ascertain this. And so he wants to do good and bless his brothers, but he also wants to test them. So he tells us to invite them into my home with the purpose of having a meal with them. Now I want you to Now think of the brothers as they're coming together. Eleven brothers coming together. They've come a long way from the land of Canaan. And hordes of people are coming from all over the world to Egypt to buy grain. Remember, it's famine all across the globe. And yet now, these brothers are singled out and they're invited to the prince of Egypt. They're thinking, why are we singled out? They're thinking something is wrong. I mean, we saw last week for the first time, these hard-hearted men were being softened and they realized their guilt and their sin, what they had done to their brother Joseph many years ago. So their heart is certainly softening up and there's an awareness of their guilt. And now as they're being singled out and invited into the home of the prince of Egypt, they're afraid again because they think they're in trouble again. And something untoward is going to happen to them. I mean, they're thinking that the money that they paid for the grain, that was found in their sacks. So they're thinking, oh no, now we're going to be accused of being having stolen the grain, and now we're going to be taken into custody. 
Listen to their fears in verse 18 as they were invited into Joseph's home. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that, were brought, that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So the brothers are thinking, oh no, this is, this is it. We're going to be made slaves. All our possessions are going to be seized. They're really afraid right now. And so what do they do? Verse 19. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. But when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. So the brothers are saying to the Joseph steward, the money that we paid for the grain, we, we found it in our sacks. You know, we're not accusing anyone here by any means, but we also want you to know we're not guilty of what you might be thinking that we're guilty of. We brought that money back and we've also brought more money to buy food. So the situation is really tense now. The brothers are nothing short of terrified. And you can almost visualize the, the, the brothers, you know, in desperation, you know, sweat coming down their, their hearts, thumping really hard. But what happens next? is totally unexpected. See, they're thinking they're going to be enslaved and treated harshly, but instead what they're going to encounter is unexpected mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Verse 23, this is now the steward speaking to them. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. I mean, this is, this is amazing and unexpected what's happening here. The steward is saying to them, first of all, Shalom, peace. You know, typical Hebrew greeting. Even that is unexpected. You know, in the land of Egypt, where everyone follows uh, idols, and shalom it has the idea of wholeness and, and well-being and happiness. And this steward is telling them, shalom, don't be afraid. Why? Because he says, I've received your money, but your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. You know, he's saying, God is the one who has blessed you with that money, even though I've received your money. I want you to think about this as to what he's saying. You know, I'm sure Joseph Stewart would have gotten orders from Joseph to say, hey, all that money that they gave for the grain, put it back in their sacks the first time that they gave. 
But I find it amazing that he says, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. What is he doing? He's acknowledging God's sovereignty over the events of their life. He's saying it's, it's God. It's because of God that you ultimately receive that money in your sack. Isn't that amazing? Even though he understands that God uses human instruments to accomplish his purposes. And what we see here is Joseph's influence in the life of this steward. So much so that this steward is now pointing his brothers back to God. Do you see God in the picture? It's God who's showing mercy to you, he's saying. Verse 23, then the steward, he brought Simeon out to them. So Simeon, who's been in the pit for however long he's been there, is now released. And essentially the, the guy is saying, yes, there is no charge against you all. You have no reason to be afraid. Verse 24 and 25. And when the men had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they, shall, they should eat bread there. I mean, it's unexpected mercy after mercy after mercy. So not what they were thinking would happen. They're being treated like royalty, so much so that even their animals are being cared for. Verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. So the brothers give their gifts to Joseph. And Joseph knows, you know, his, his dear father he hasn't seen for so many years and is old in age. And so he inquires about the well-being of Jacob. And then finally, his brothers bow down to Joseph in respect. Again, this is fulfilling the dream that Joseph had many years ago. More of a fulfillment. Remember, last week in 42, it was only 10 brothers bowing down to him. Now it's all 11 brothers bowing down to him. Verse 29. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. See, Joseph hasn't seen his, his younger brother as a full grown man, he's seen him as a boy. And so now seeing him and seeing him to be the youngest of all these older guys, he says, is, is this your younger brother, Benjamin? And he pronounces God's grace on him. 
And he's so overcome by compassion for his brother that he walks out to find a place to weep and he weeps there. And you know, though, I love what the text is doing here. The word here for compassion that Joseph grew, uh, his compassion grew warm, that word for compassion is the word in Hebrew, rahamim. It's the same word that Jacob used in his prayer when he said, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Jacob's feeble faith and prayer has been answered by God Almighty in the compassion and the mercy shown by Joseph. You see that? This is God working his compassion and mercy through Joseph. Jacob was weak and thinking, everything is against me. And in this state of everything is gray and despondency, not, not really turning to the Lord, but God, who is full of mercy and compassion, was working through Joseph for his good. And we shouldn't be surprised, right? This is the same God even today. A God who is full of compassion and mercy to sinful people like us. Look at what Joseph does next, verse 31. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So think of it like this. Joseph, he's prince of Egypt, he's royalty. He's got his table. He's eating at his table. The Egyptians, because of certain cer ceremonial reasons, because of their pagan practices, they don't share their meal with others. So they have a different table. And then the brothers are seated on their table. So, you know, I would almost imagine as if Joseph's table is somewhere here, just in front of him is another table where the brothers are sitting there before Joseph. And the brothers are seated there on their table, ready to receive food from Joseph's very table. Verse 33 and 34. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement, Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So here's, here's the picture here. So they come to sit at their tables, the brothers, and they're directed to sit according to their birth order. Oldest sit here, then the next one, next one, next one, next one, next one. And the brothers are amazed, thinking, how can this be? 
How can somebody know who's, you know, there's 11 brothers here. How can somebody get this so right? And they're, they're in amazement how they're seated in this birth order. I wonder if they thought, does this prince know more about us than we think? And then what happens? So you can imagine, so the firstborn sitting here, that's the, you know, always the place of prominence as far as the family is concerned, always gets the best portion and so on. So they're seated this way and the food is coming out from Joseph's table. Wonderful, fantastic food. And yet, when they come to the youngest, Benjamin, he gets five times as much. I mean, you can, you, you can imagine how jarring this would have been. I mean, it's not to the firstborn all this food is given, but five times more the youngest gets. Oh, Jacob is testing his brothers. You see, they're, they're drinking and they're being, you know, there's alcohol consumption and some of their inhibitions too would be becoming loose. And he wants to see now in front of these brothers, even as I have shown favor to them, if Benjamin is going to be shown some favoritism, is all that animosity and division going to come? Have my brothers changed or not? Or do they still have murderous hearts where they're just looking to strike out Benjamin someday? And what do we see? Nothing happens. They're all sitting together in their birth order while the youngest one gets five times more. Nobody is fighting. They're happy and merry sitting around the prince of Egypt and enjoying the food from his table. Oh, what a story of the abounding, undeserved, unexpected mercy of God to these brothers. What do these brothers deserve? When you think about their life, in all the various things that they had done, including what they had done to Joseph, what do they deserve? To be killed. To be thrown in the pit forever. And yet, God in his grace has convicted them of their sin and he's showing mercy and grace to them through Joseph now, drawing them to himself and to each other. You know, this is a beautiful picture of how God works and how God draws wicked sinners to himself. He first convicts them of their sin, but it's not to then destroy them, but he convicts them of their sin in order to display his mercy and grace to them. And when you think of what God ultimately did, it is such a stark contrast to what Jacob did. 
or what happened to Joseph. Because many years later, God the Father, knowing fully well what would happen to his son, knowing fully well that his son would be manhandled and tortured. He, God the Father, sent his son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to experience the wickedness and the sin of this world by those around him, even though he himself was sinless. To be treated as a nobody and the scum of this world. And the people so hated him when he came to his people that they crucified him on that cross. You think it would have been easy for God the Father to see his son that way on the cross while he poured out his judgment and wrath on him? You think it would have been easy for God the Son, Jesus Christ, on that cross, obedient to his Father, wanting to fulfill his Father's plan, to stay on that cross and bear the full punishment of the sin of this world? Oh, what a terrible agony that would have been. Even as we hear Jesus on that cross saying, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Yet, it is through that very act, through Jesus dying on the cross and paying the judgment for the sin of people like you and me, that he has brought us back to God and has reconciled us back to God. And what we see is that is that picture of the gospel being acted out even now. When you think of this life on this earth. Sure, we might not face famines, not a physical famine, maybe we will, but certainly a spiritual famine of sorts, of, of adversity and trial and pain and suffering. But there is an end to it, because God has already sent his Son and paved the way and he's seated on the right hand of the Father right now. And what God is doing is he's drawing people from every tribe and tongue, gathering together where finally we will be 
all in the house of God, feasting with the Prince of Life himself, Jesus Christ. And we will all say, thank you. What an amazing and merciful God. Let's pray to you. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a God who will not overlook sin. But we thank you that in order to save wretched people like us, the judgment that was due us, you poured out that judgment on your son so that one day, as even as enemies, people who hated you, we will come to feast at the table of the prince of life. Father, we thank you much for this. We thank you for these narratives that tell us not only just how you have worked in the past in order to bring about your redemptive plan, but also reminds us once again of the good and gracious and merciful God you are, who is drawing people to yourself and will one day, in an ultimate way, draw all your people to yourself. We long for that day. Until then, help us to be faithful to you in light of who you are and what you're doing. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.